This is Space Time, Series 21, Episode 49, for broadcast on the 22nd of June, 2018. Coming up on Space Time. Mystery objects discovered near the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. A new study says life rebounded within just a few years following the dinosaur-killing asteroid impact. And NASA's new mission for the Kepler Space Telescope. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered several bizarre objects at the centre of our galaxy that are concealing their true identity behind a smokescreen of dust. They look like gas clouds, but behave more like stars. The observations are based on 12 years of data taken by the giant 10-metre Keck telescopes on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. The study's lead author, Anna Curlow, from the University of California, Los Angeles, says these compact, dusty, stellar-like objects are moving extremely fast and extremely close to Sagittarius A star, the supermassive black hole at the centre of our Milky Way galaxy. The researchers made their discovery by obtaining spectroscopic measurements of the galactic centre's gas dynamics using OSIRIS, the Keck Observatory's 08-suppressing infrared imaging spectrograph. The authors began expecting to observe the complicated structure of gas and dust near the supermassive black hole, hoping to detect some subtle changes in shape and velocity. Surprisingly, they found several objects that have very distinct movement and characteristics, placing them in the G-class used for dusty stellar objects. Astronomers first discovered G-class objects at the Milky Way's monster black hole more than a decade ago. The first to be seen, catalogued as G1, was discovered in 2004, with G2 discovered in 2012. Both were thought to be gas clouds, that is, until they made their closest approach to the supermassive black hole. Somehow, both G1 and G2 managed to survive the black hole's gravitational pull, which would normally shred nearby gas clouds apart. In other words, if there were gas clouds, G1 and G2 would not have been able to survive intact. So it's more likely that these G-class objects are bloated stars. Stars which have become so large that the tidal forces exerted by the black hole is pulling matter off their stellar envelopes whenever the stars get close enough. But yet they still retain enough mass in their stellar core to remain intact. So, the question then becomes, why are these stars so large? It appears a lot of energy must have been dumped into the G-class objects, causing them to swell up and grow larger than typical stars. They could be the result of stellar mergers, where two stars orbiting each other in a binary system eventually get so close they crash into each other, a process helped by the gravitational influence of the nearby supermassive black hole. Over a long time period, the black hole's gravity alters the binary star's orbits until they eventually merge. The combined object that results from this violent merger could explain where the excess energy came from. In the aftermath of such a merger, the resulting single object would be all puffed up or distended for perhaps a million years before it finally settles down and starts looking like a normal star again. What makes G-class objects so unusual is their puffiness. It's rare for a star to be cloaked by a layer of gas and dust so thick that astronomers can't see the star directly. Instead, they only see the glowing envelope of dust. So to see the objects through their hazy environment, the authors developed a tool called the OSIRIS Volume Display. It's allowed astronomers to isolate these G-class objects from the background emission and then analyse their spectral data in three dimensions, two spatial dimensions and the wavelength dimension that provides velocity information. 
Once the authors were able to distinguish the objects in a 3D data cube, they could then track their motion over time relative to the black hole. These newly discovered infrared sources could potentially be G-class objects, categorised as G3, G4 and G5. That's because they share the physical characteristics of G1 and G2. Once the three-dimensional analysis was performed, the authors could clearly distinguish the G-class objects and followed their movement as they travelled around the black hole. And it's not over yet. The authors will continue to follow the size and shape of the G-class object orbits, which could provide important clues about how they formed. They'll be paying especially close attention when these dusty stellar compact objects make their closest approach to the black hole. This will allow them to further observe their behaviour and see if they remain intact just as G1 and G2 did, or whether they become a snack for the black hole. Only then will they give away their true nature. Of course, the authors will need to wait a few decades for that to happen. You see, it's going to be about 20 years before G3 gets close enough, and decades longer for G4 and G5. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. A new study claims life quickly returned to the dinosaur-killing asteroid impact site. The impact of the 15-kilometre-wide asteroid into what is now Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula some 66 million years ago wiped out over 75% of all life on Earth, including all the non-avian dinosaurs. However, a new analysis of sediments in the Chicxulub impact crater showed that life quickly returned to the area within just a few years of the mass extinction event. The findings reported in the journal Science suggest the nutrient-rich waters around the submerged crater attracted marine life, allowing the area to once again flourish. The study comes as complementary research on marine fish fossil records in northern Africa show how global temperatures changed dramatically at the time of the impact event. The Tertiary Cretaceous, or KT, boundary event impact caused an immediate sudden and dramatic skyrocketing of temperatures across the planet by hundreds of degrees as molten rock and burning ejecta were flung high into the atmosphere, only to then rain back down upon the Earth, triggering global firestorms. However, earthquakes and volcanic activity, which was also triggered by the impact, combined with soot from the fires and dust and debris from the impact, acted to block out the sun, subjecting the planet to an impact winter which would have lasted for years if not decades. Eventually, all the carbon dioxide released from these events would have triggered a significant global warming event lasting 100,000 years, in the process increasing global temperatures by over 5 degrees Celsius. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley speaking with Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Now, Fred, we're going to talk about a thing that happened uh, 66-odd million years ago. This is the dinosaur asteroid which struck Earth and basically changed the, the planet for most of the living creatures upon it and uh, sort of was the death knell for the uh, the dinosaurs, amongst other things. Didn't wasn't the absolute reason they died, but it certainly finished them off. But something else happened, which they've discovered through fossil records, and, and this um, kind of leads us to where we are today in some respects and some of the issues we're facing on the planet, and that was a temperature increase. Exactly, that's right. I think this is a really interesting story. It is one of a pair of papers that has recently been published relating to the details of the asteroid impact 66 million years ago. This one really turns conventional wisdom on its head because the bottom line is, yes, the dinosaurs, we believe, were finished off by an asteroid impact 66 million years ago. There's ample to the, to the day. 
Mm. Uh, to the day, it was on a Wednesday. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's ample. It's probably the first of April, actually. Yeah, probably. We, we won't go there. <laughs> there's ample evidence for that impact event and for its catastrophic effect on the dinosaur population. There's also, though, evidence, as you've just hinted at in your intro, that other things were happening then. There were within the previous million years or so. There've been really big geological upsets in the Earth. The Deccan Traps, which is a series of volcanoes in India, had been erupting and had flooded half that continent with, uh, or subcontinent with molten lava. A bit like what's going on in Hawaii at the moment, oh, only yes. on a much, much grander scale. So all that was essentially stressing the population of dinosaurs. And then, lo and behold, a 15-kilometre asteroid comes out of the blue, lands in what is now the Gulf of Mexico, and wipes them out. That's sort of all relatively conventional wisdom. What most of us think happened, or most of us until now have thought happened after that, mm. was that it was the drop in temperature that killed the dinosaurs, the Earth's ambient temperature falling as a result of the amount of sediment and rock and soil and seabed, because it was actually in a shallow sea where the asteroid landed, all that stuff being flung into the atmosphere because of the huge amount of energy that was released by the impact. Yeah, it's and just hard to imagine the plume from that impact. Right. Just I think, yeah, yeah. mind-boggling. Quite a plume, that's and, right. And, and yes, you would you would naturally think like nuclear winter effect. It's exactly that. You th throw all this stuff up into the atmosphere, all this, you know, the aerosols and the particles, they sit up there at high altitudes and essentially reduce what we call the insulation, the amount of sunlight falling on the Earth's surface. So the temperature drops, the dinosaurs, which are cold-blooded creatures, say, oh, we don't like this much, and very quickly, probably within 100,000 years or so, the, the species dies out. But the new evidence comes from a place actually quite a long way from the impact site itself, a place in northern Tunisia. It's called El Kef, and El Kef is rich in fossils and microfossils and has been explored in detail by a number of scientists, most notably professors from the University of Missouri in the US. This is really quite extraordinary stuff because what they've done is looked at the fossilized remains of fish. These are fish fossils, and they're kind of broken up fish fossils. They're mostly small fragments. And they've looked at the details of these fish fossils, both below and above what we call the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. And that's the geological layer that corresponds to the time when the dinosaurs uh, were wiped out. Right. And in fact, it's that layer which is rich in iridium that comes from space rather than the Earth. That's how people know that it's it's an asteroid. That goes back to the late 1970s, that discovery. Yeah. Anyway, uh, these scientists have looked at these sand grain-sized pieces of fish fossils and realised that they can deduce some interesting things about the environment that these fish lived in. So there are, there are fish fossils before the impact and fish fossils after the impact, and they can actually use an isotope of oxygen called oxygen 18 to deduce the temperature 
of the water in which these fish were living. Work that one out. No, I'm right on it. I I know what you're talking about. It's not an obvious link, but it's to do with the way the fish actually build the minerals by chemical reactions in all the, the hard bits, their teeth, their bones, and things of that sort. So by measuring the amounts of this oxygen isotope in the fish fossils, you can actually tell what the temperature was of the water that they lived in. And sure sure enough, kind of ambient temperature before the impact was in the region of 20 to 25 degrees Celsius. It's kind of rather warmer than the current uh, average ambient temperature of the Earth, which is about 15 Celsius. But this is in this region of northern Tunisia, which is sort of fairly equatorial. So they worked out, yes, the temperature before the impact was in this 20 to 25 degree region, but afterwards it went up by about five degrees Celsius. So wow. the water temperature... So it, it went from 20 to 25 to 25 to 30. Yes, that's right. That's correct. That's pretty staggering. I think it is as well. It's a big change. You know, we, we're talking about tenths of a degree change and the effect it has on our climate in terms of global anthropic global warming that's the word i'm looking for uh that's warming the climate but at a rather slow rate compared with what happened immediately after the asteroid impact and the thinking behind why this should be instead of you know the, the fact that you've got particles shading the earth's surface from the sun what you've actually got you do get that but that collapses out of or falls out of the atmosphere relatively quickly so the long term effects of the particulate debris in the atmosphere are not very long term they're relatively short term perhaps 100 years at the most right whereas the effect that they're seeing lasted for 100,000 years long enough to to knock the dinosaurs on the head because of this dramatic change in the climate and the scientists think that it came from the fact that not only were there particles put up into the atmosphere but also carbon dioxide that the impact released carbon dioxide and probably methane as well which is another greenhouse gas that probably these gases were released into the atmosphere in very large quantities and you've got very rapid warming because of that the greenhouse effect kicks in and the earth warms up so basically what we are saying as a result of this discovery is hey you know this happened to the dinosaurs because of an asteroid and hello stop and smell (laughs) the roses because it's happening again and it's not an asteroid but it doesn't matter it's the same effect yes it is that's andrew dunkley host of our sister program space nuts speaking with dr fred watson from the australian astronomical observatory and this is space time I'm Stuart Gary. NASA's former planet-hunting Kepler Space Telescope's on a new mission to study the secrets of open star clusters. Open star clusters are loosely bound groups of stars which were originally all formed at the same time from the same collapsed molecular gas and dust cloud. As well as open star clusters, this 18th observing campaign of its K2 extended mission will also study faraway galaxies and a handful of solar system objects, including comets, objects beyond Neptune, and a very specific asteroid. The mission could well be Kepler's last, as the spacecraft expected to run out of fuel within months. For the observation, the probe will look at the same patch of the sky it observed back in 2015 allowing it to see what, if anything's changed, and if there are any previously undetected exoplanets out there. The open star cluster observations will focus on Messier 67 and 44, otherwise known as the Beehive Cluster. It's already home to six known exoplanets, and will be searched for objects transiting or crossing in front of these and other stars in the cluster. At just 800 million years old, the stars in the Beehive Cluster are still in their teenage years compared to our Sun. 
Many of these youthful stars are active and have large sunspots which can reveal all sorts of information about a star's magnetic field, a fundamental component of a star that drives flaring and other activities that would be influential over the habitability of any planets orbiting around the star. By comparing brightness data to that observed in 2015, scientists can learn more about how a star's spots cycle over time. While Messier 44 is fairly young, at several billion years, Messier 67 is much older, with many sun-like stars. It's also one of the best-studied open clusters in the sky. Astronomers want to look for changes in brightness in these stars, and to search for the signatures of exoplanets, observe pulsations in evolved stars, and measure the rotation rates of stars in the cluster. Kepler will also be looking for blazars, powerful energy sources generated by feeding supermassive black holes at the centres of distant galaxies. These objects propel jets of hot plasma towards Earth. The most noticeable of these targets, OJ-287, is a system hosting two black holes orbiting each other, one of which has some 18 billion times the mass of our Sun. Closer to home, Kepler will also be looking at solar system objects, including comets, trans-Neptunian objects, that is, things in the Kuiper Belt and Oort Cloud, and also one very specific near-Earth object, the asteroid 99942 Apophis. Apophis is a 370-metre-wide chunk of rock that will pass closer to the Earth's surface than geostationary satellites on April the 13th, 2029. That's just 11 years from now. Now, it won't hit the Earth, but it will come awfully close. And the gravitational perturbations caused by this close encounter will change Apophis's course causing it to potentially make an even closer approach seven years later on April the 13th, 2036. Now, current calculations indicate there'll be nothing to worry about in 2036, nor will there be anything to worry about in the next close approach in 2068. The chance of impact in the Earth during that close encounter is just 1 in 150,000. But things start to get a bit more interesting after that. In fact, there's a 1 in 110,000 chance of Apophis hitting the Earth sometime between 2060 and 2105. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. SpaceX has marked the 8th anniversary of the first successful launch of a Falcon 9 rocket with a spectacular nighttime launch off the same launch pad. The Falcon 9, carrying the SES-12 telecommunications satellite, blasted off from Space Launch Complex 40 at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida. The mission lit up the night skies with a stunning golden pillar of light stretching towards the heavens as the rocket carried its payload into geostationary transfer orbit. Stage 2 locks closed out. Falcon 9's on internal power. Let's close out, Charlie. Falcon 9's in startup. LD, go for launch. Minus 15 seconds. 10... And we've had successful liftoff of Falcon 9 as it carries SES-12 to geostationary transfer orbit. We're coming up on Max-Q here in a few seconds. Max-Q, remember, as we increase our velocity, pressure increases, but then we're going through less dense atmosphere, so pressure decreases. Everything after Max-Q means the scarce density is decreasing the pressure on the vehicle. So we're going to come up on a few events here in short succession. It's MECO, Stage SEP, and then SES-1. MECO is main engine cutoff. That's when all nine engines 
engines on first stage stop firing. There follows stage separation when the two stages gently separate from each other. And then the third event in that succession is SES-1, which is engine. second engine start number one. Stage first. Okay. Good first stage performance. And we're coming up on the next major event, which is the deployment of the fairings, those aerodynamic shields surrounding SES-12. And the fairings have deployed. Now, this is the first of two planned burns that the second stage will conduct. Then the fairings deployed thereafter, exposing SES-12 to space. We don't need that extra mass once we're outside of the atmosphere. We no longer need our aerodynamic shield. Now, a quick note on the fairings. While we aren't attempting recovery of the fairings today, we have been attempting to recover fairings during our West Coast launches. Now, last launch, we got pretty close with the fairing landing about 50 meters from Mr. Steven, which is our catch boat. And we will continue those recovery attempts until we're successful, but not on today's SES-12 mission. So we're going for a few minutes here. This burn is, again, six minutes long. And so then we'll reach Seco-1, which is second engine cutoff, Number one. We again had a successful liftoff of the Falcon 9. It's carrying the SES 12 payload to geostationary transfer orbits. Second stage has separated and is about halfway through its first of two planned burns. SpaceX did not attempt to recover the Falcon 9's first stage or its payload fairings after this launch. The same Falcon 9 first stage used on the SES 12 mission had previously launched a US Air Force X 37B robotic space shuttle on secret mission OTV 5 from Launch Complex 39A back in September 2017. The 5,383 kilogram SES 12 was deployed 32 minutes after liftoff. Built by Airbus Defence and Space, SES 12 is a replacement for the 15 and a half year old NSS 6 satellite. It'll provide direct-to-home television broadcasts, video and data relay services, as well as broadband connectivity across Australia, the Asia-Pacific and the Middle East over the next 15 years, using a footprint stretching from Cyprus in the west to Japan in the east and from Russia in the north to Australia in the south. This launch marked the 86th flight of the Falcon 9. SpaceX's next mission will be the Dragon CRS-15 cargo ship, carrying some 3,310 kilograms of supplies bound for the International Space Station, which is slated for launch on June the 28th, also from Space Launch Complex 40 at Cape Canaveral. Japan has launched another spy satellite to keep an eye on its aggressive neighbours North Korea and China. The new radar surveillance satellite blasted off from the Tanegashima Space Centre south of Tokyo aboard an H-2A rocket. The IGS Radar 6 is equipped with a synthetic aperture radar payload designed to provide high-resolution imaging of surface objects day and night and in all weather conditions. The probe is the latest in a growing constellation of spy satellites launched by Japan in the wake of a series of intercontinental ballistic missile tests by North Korea and China's move to build artificial islands in the middle of the South China Sea to operate as heavily fortified military bases. The flight was the 39th launch of the 53-metre-tall H-2A rocket and the second H-2A launch this year. China has successfully launched a new advanced weather satellite into geostationary orbit. A Long March 3A rocket carried the Fengyong 2H into space from the Zhaichang Satellite Launch Centre in southwestern China. The Fengyong 2H is the last of eight Fengyong 2 series spin-stabilised meteorological satellites, which began deployment back in the 1980s. The spacecraft is equipped with a stretched visible and infrared scan spin radiometer multipurpose imager, solar X-ray and space environment monitors, and a data collection service. The Fengyong 2H has a design life of four years. 
China is seeing an influx of private companies trying to cash in on the growing satellite commercial launch market. Two new companies, iSpace and OneSpace, have each carried out suborbital test flights from opposite ends of the country. OneSpace launched its 9-metre single-stage prototype rocket, Zhongqing Liangguan Star, on a ballistic flight path to an altitude of 273 kilometres. The 2,700-kilogram rocket develops 350 kilonewtons of thrust. The Beijing-based company claims its launch vehicles designed to test technologies which will be used on the company's OSX series rockets, which it says will be placing 100-kilogram payloads into 800-kilometre-high orbits within a couple of years. Meanwhile, OneSpace is also developing what it says is its new M-series launch vehicle in order to compete for the growing CubeSat launch market as well. The OneSpace flight follows last month's launch of another Chinese startup, iSpace, which flew its new 8.4-metre-tall Hyperbola 1S suborbital rocket to an altitude of 108 kilometres. Both operators claim to be using new launch vehicles, which they developed themselves. However, both are very similar in appearance, and the iSpace launch vehicle does look an awful lot like a small, retired Chinese military solid-fuel rocket, possibly based on the DF-11 or DF-15 missile. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A study of more than 10,000 British civil servants has found that 50-year-olds with blood pressure higher than normal, but still within the UK guidelines safe limits, are more likely than those with normal blood pressure to develop dementia in later life. The findings reported in the European Heart Journal show the link held true even among those with otherwise healthy hearts and blood vessels. Researchers suggest that long-term exposure to the symptoms of high blood pressure, including many strokes, white matter damage and restricted blood flow to the brain, may explain the increased dementia risk. Well, they're one of the iconic trees dotting the harsh wilderness landscapes of the Australian Kimberley and parts of southern Africa. But sadly, it seems, baobab trees are mysteriously dying. Ironically, scientists made the discovery while studying the baobab's longevity. Individual trees can live for more than 2,500 years. However, during their study, researchers found that 8 of the 13 oldest and 5 of the 6 largest baobabs abruptly died during the 12 years of their study. And these weren't isolated cases, but turned out to be typical of a far more widespread problem. The thing is there are no signs of epidemic or disease, and that's leading scientists to suggest that climate change may be to blame. Baobabs feature gnarled branches reaching over 30 metres in height, and they have iconic bloated bottle-like trunks around 20 metres in diameter. Ancient Australian Aboriginal legend has it that baobabs were a very proud tree, so proud and conceited, in fact, that they were ripped out of the ground and put back in upside down, turning their root system into the gnarled branches we see today. The interesting thing about this story is that it's not only part of the Australian Aboriginal Dreamtime, but also told by natives in Southern Africa. The study on the dying of the baobabs is reported in the journal Nature Plants. Intel has finally launched its powerful new Core i7-8086K CPU. The processor comes with Intel's 8th generation plus coffee lake architecture. This introduces six core processors with six or 12 threads for its Core i7 and Core i5 processors and quad-core chips for its Core i3 processors. Intel plans to initially produce around 50,000 of the new chips worldwide. 
A new research suggests that blue-tongued lizards use their colourful tongues as a last-ditch effort to avoid being eaten. The findings by the Lizard Lab at Sydney's Macquarie University are based on studies showing the base of the reptile's tongue is particularly bright under ultraviolet light, which just happens to be a wavelength that birds can see very clearly. The lizards rely on camouflage to avoid hawks and other predators. But when that fails, the lizards poke out their tongues as far as possible, distracting the birds with a flash of blue and ultraviolet tongue. And yes, I'm reliably assured you would see the bright tongue under disco lights. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favorite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 